Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films that will never come up in a film today's course. This week's film is no exception. It is the 1987 classic Dirty Dancing. I was going to make a joke about the title, but I don't really want to go there. This feels like as good a time as any while you're unable to do your normal bit that you open the show with. Uh, this is a continuation of our Growing Up Summer Marathon, where we are going to be doing a series of uh, coming-of-age movies, and as with this film and most coming-of-age films, they're going to be set in the summer, because it's, you know, hot right now. It is indeed, and Baby Becomes Francis. In the course of this film, more on that later. But let's go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. And Dalton, put your pickle on everyone's plate and let me worry about the hard stuff. <laughs> Very good. Very good to my left, sir. Who are you? Me? Yeah, you. I'm Dalton Stewart, and I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of what I saw, scared of what I did, of who I am. And most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with the two of you talking about movies. Nice. Aww. My name's Dustin Sells, and the reason why I'm here is because I carried a watermelon. And I am... <laughs> he did. I did. He that. juggled it through the door. I did. Two of them. Very impressive. Very elongated watermelons. I, well, you know, I'm quite coordinated. I know. Now, Arthur, I did get the name of this marathon right. Yes, yeah, growing up summer, growing yeah. up in summer, something like that. Yeah, something growing up. We, we've got a wonderful banner on our Twitter right now that Arthur made, and I love it. I love it when Arthur does those those banners announcing our marathons. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I do too. Um, and also, I want to warn you, dear listener, in case you're tuning in for the very first time, as to what's about to happen to your ears. There will be spoilers uh, regarding this 40 year old movie. Um, but uh, that a long time. being said, what was well, not 40 years old? It's 30, 30 and change. 30 and change. Much like Dustin. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> and old. me, I suppose. I'm older than this movie. Anyway, you are. Um, what we'll do, though, to avoid spoilers at the outset, is this: we will have synopsis, which is, of course, um, should be spoiler-free if IMDb is doing their job. Then we will have our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which will be spoiler-free if we do our job. Then we will play games uh, regarding uh, this uh, film and other films in its orbit, which might involve a mild spoiler or two. And then we get down. To to business, there'll be a musical cue to let you know that, that is about to happen, and then all spoiler bets are off. I am done. Let's get into that synopsis now, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Let's hear it, please. Spending the summer at a Catskills resort with her family, Frances Baby Hausman falls in love with the camp's dance instructor, Johnny Castle. Okay. Yep. Frank's cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Everything man. is part of the MCU retroactively. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness, let's retcon that. Oh my gosh, so hard. And it, and his and his super ability is you know he's able to just you know woo anyone with his dance any woman. skills. One of the great A any woman, wait, anyone, anyone, and it's anyone with his dancing one, skills. One of one of the great tragedies, other than losing Patrick Swayze too young, is that we lost him before he got to be in a Marvel movie, and that's a real shame. That is indeed mm -hmm. a shame. 
So let's do this thing. Let's talk about Dirty Dancing. Arthur, do you like it? If so, why or why not? Uh, you know what? I was actually kind of worried going into this. I've seen it before, and I don't remember loving it the first time I watched it. But this time around, I actually kind of enjoyed it quite a bit uh, more than I remember. Um, we kind of talked about some of the stuff on air, like the pacing and some of the timing and things like that, which I think affected me the first time. But this time, I really kind of got into it. Um, I, I Swayze's so good. I don't. I mean, he's just a lot of fun. Uh, in, in, in any kind of role, and especially in the 80s, he's just on a roll, uh, really. And so, yeah, I, I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. I think it's got a lot of kind of heart and uh, just it's cute and fun. And uh, I think Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze just have a great dynamic, great chemistry together. Uh, Wayne Knight uh, shows up, which is How just wonky. About Wayne Knight? Newman. Uh, 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 uh. See, you think, didn't say the magic words. Yeah, I always think Nedry before I, I think do too. Unappreciated in my time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he, uh, it's it's a good time. I, I I think for the most part. Um, I I mean I think it's got its flaws. You know, we mentioned the pacing and just some of the acting's off and some of those things like that. And uh, but the dances are fun. The, the soundtrack is great. It's got a great uh, soundtrack with it and some great drops in there. Um, some great dance sequences. Uh, I think uh, the the one where they're practicing and we talked about this off there. The one where they're practicing and they're crawling across the floor with each other and. Just that whole training montage, I think, is really solid. And then, obviously, the finale is one of the most probably memorable dance sequences in modern cinema. Uh, I think it gets riffed quite a bit. And we talked about the influence of Stand By Me getting riffed a lot. And I think this is another one that gets riffed quite a bit. And, and that uh, that lift is, is a kind of iconic moment in cinema. And so it, it's got its moments. Um, for the most part, I, I I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, not the greatest thing ever, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a movie. All right. Well, thank you for that review, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton Stewart? Do you like Dirty Dancing and why or why not? I, w- I was going to try to do a joke just now, too, about how I enjoy Dirty Dancing in my off time when we're not recording. But No, I, I enjoyed the film. This was a first time watch for me uh, as well. And I, I can see why it's had staying power, why it has continued to be part of our cultural consciousness, because it does feel like a pretty seminal moment in uh, Hollywood uh, making films about female uh, sexual awakening, about uh, youthful rebellion, about class, about you know, about being horny. This is a very horny film. Uh, yeah. Just all the way through. And uh, I can see why, but in a wholesome way, to some extent, uh, in, in a way that uh, that feels very nuanced and, and, and sweet and tender. And I, I really appreciate that about the film. And it's just a delight. It's a quick watch. I mean, the movie, uh, with the exception of some stuff towards the end of the second act, I really feel like it just moves very well. We were talking, as Arthur mentioned off air, that there there are some some issues. I feel like the direction and the editing and the writing are not always on the same page. There are some scenes that feel like they've been rearranged. Uh, there's some performance uh, beats that it feels like. I wonder if they should have used a different take of that of that line read. Um, there's some weird match cuts where they'll cut to a close up of somebody in a way that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Uh, it happens a lot for Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, the two of them having the most screen time. There were some cuts to, to close-ups uh, for line deliveries of them that feel kind of at odds with what's happening in the rest of the scene. And just barely too long. Yeah, or or just the the shot they cut from doesn't quite feel right. Um, but again, their chemistry carries this film, uh, which is interesting because apparently there was uh, some uh, some hard feelings between the two of them on set, which I think is really interesting, yeah. 
They didn't get along well doing Red Dawn. They didn't get along well doing Red Dawn. Swayze had to convince Gray to come in on it, uh, and I guess they screen tested together really, really well. And early in the shoot, it was going great, and then about at the halfway point, things weren't going great. Apparently, that arm tickle where Swayze gets, as we mentioned, that was you know just the camera was left rolling. And him getting annoyed when she got ticklish was like a real reaction. He was annoyed that the scene had yeah. gotten screwed up and they were going to have to go again. So that, that I guess that uh, continued to build throughout production, and they were kind of at odds. And uh, the production team had to get together and be like, what are we going to do about this? We've got to have like a love scene with these two. We've got to sell this this relationship. And they sat the two of them down to watch their screen test to be like, remember? Remember how good you two are together? And they're like, oh, yeah, duh. So I, I think that's a kind of a, a fun uh, behind-the-scenes tale, if the legend yeah. of that is true. I, I think that's really interesting. But, yeah, I, I mean, their chemistry really is the backbone and foundation of this entire film, and uh, it works. I mean, they're, they are great together. Uh, this, this film makes you lament uh, that we don't have more great Jennifer Grey performances because I think she's fabulous in it. Uh, we've already talked about Swayze being great in it, but Swayze was great in everything he did, and he has a lot of roles to to highlight, you know, what what a performer he was. And I, I don't know that we have that from Gray. Uh, I mean, I don't think y- y- I'm out of school saying that neither of them is, like, the best actor in, in the world, but I think they're both very good in their roles here. Yeah. Uh, like Swayze doesn't have the most, didn't have the most range in the world, and I'm I'm not going to sit here and pretend he did. But I just really like him a lot in everything he does, and this especially. Um, and again, Jennifer Grey, I, I wish we got more performances out of her. It's it's kind of a shame. I mean, she's still working, but uh, we, we need more great Jennifer Grey roles in our life. Uh, but everybody's well cast here. Uh, I oh, I can't think of her name. The actress that plays her mom, who is the grandmother on Gilmore Girls, uh, she's great here. Um, I could have used more of her. Yeah. Um, there's moments where you're like, could this movie be shorter? And then there's other moments where you're like, I wonder if we needed another scene or two from this character. Yeah. So there, there are some moments there that I feel like kind of hold it back from being something even more special than it is. But again, who, who the hell am I? This film has had a really pretty powerful cultural uh, you know, cachet for over 30 years now. And uh, I just think that that speaks to some of the magic that's going on in this film. And sometimes, you know, you, you can't guess what's going to be a hit. And this film was not made for a lot of money and uh, made a whole, whole big old pile of it and has continued to be really powerful for generations of uh, young teens now. So I, I think there's something to it, man. There, there's something kind of ephemeral uh, about, uh, about a, a lesser film, I guess, a film you wouldn't talk about in a film studies course. And sometimes they are just able to strike a chord, and really ring true uh, throughout culture. And I, I think this this film does that magnificently. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I also like Dirty Dancing. It's a fun movie. Um, it is a shade too long. Um, I do think that is the case. And I do think there is some editing choices that needed to have been made. I mean, there are some darlings that just needed to die. I'm not, I'm not going to pick what they are. But I will say uh, the Come Here Lover Boy dance sequence needed to happen about 10 minutes earlier. Yeah. And uh, however... It's so good. It is so great. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love the performances. I love the fact that w- we choose to do a coming-of-age story in the 60s, and we choose the early 60s. Mm-hmm. We choose a moment before the Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy assassinations. We choose a moment before the 68 protests. We choose 
news a moment before Woodstock. And so it's a different 60s than uh, what we uh, usually think of. Because when we think of the 60s, we basically think of two years and uh, a little bleed off into the early 1970s. And the 60s was a much more um, luxurious sort of time period. And uh, in fact, the 60s probably began in 1958, if you really want to come right down to it. I mean, it, it does what those early seasons of Mad Men did really well, which is show you that the early 60s were a shaking off of the cocoon that was the late 50s. Right. And so it, it's a transitional phase, and it's important and it's interesting. I love seeing that development of babies' politics uh, there early and sort of that depiction. So that I love that. I love the music. I don't love the interspersal of some 80s songs in order to, you know, have, well, again, the Academy Award winning uh, best song, uh, among other things, yeah. uh, Time of My Life. Uh, yeah, I, I wish they yeah, stuck it, only it, to 60s music. You're right. It feels a little incongruous, the, that cutting in of original music and very 80s sounding music with those those period specific uh, choices. So, but it worked for them. It, it, <laughs> yes, it did. It worked, it worked just fine. In it's, fact, it worked so well that after the, the soundtrack went platinum, they released a second soundtrack titled More Dirty Dancing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy thing. Cultural phenomenon, man. And, uh, you know, the 80s was in some sense lo- in love with the 50s and the early 60s yeah. as well. And so that bringing that sort of uh, aesthetic back musically makes some sense. And so I- I'm not – I'm just, you know, mad about that sort of weird mixing, but I'm also a little taken out by it. Um, love the performances. Uh, I think Jennifer Grey is great, uh, and I think Patrick Swayze is incredible. Uh, Jerry Orbach is really, really solid. He ends up being most famous for his roles in Law and Order, playing Lumiere, the uh, the candelabra in Beauty and the Beast. Um, isn't that weird? It is. Because that does not sound like the voice that comes out of that no. man, does it? But, uh, yeah, he does some really, really good work, and he's just, he's very, very solid here. Um, love uh, love uh, the m- Mrs. Um, – oh, gosh, Moe's wife. What is her name? Oh, she's the, a, uh, the cougar? Yeah, the cougar. She's a choreographer, though, oh, okay. uh, is what she does by trade. And uh, that's really – I mean she's got lots and lots of working credits after that. She doesn't do a whole lot of acting. But she's very, very solid in that particular little role, and it's a very recognizable face. I think Vivian is her character's Vivian, name. Vivian, yes. Yeah, Mo and Vivian. That's right. And so um, love – I mean just the little bits and pieces that are there for the most part are really, really solid. And uh, so it, it's fun times. The choreography is killing it. And, uh, yeah, I just – I like everything that I, I see, but there are a little quibbles here and there because it is – I mean it's not a perfect movie by any stretch. It does earn Patrick Swayze this title as the uh, Sleeper King uh, as this film was a sleeper hit. And then Ghost, uh, just a couple years later, ends up making a ton of money, uh, surprisingly to everyone else. And, uh, yeah, because no one knew what a national treasure Patrick Swayze was at the time. And uh, now we know too late. Yep. But that's very sad. But moving on, oh, we like this movie – our biases are generally pro, but we're not, you know, looking at this with rose-colored lenses. We know a little bit of what's up and uh, can look at it with some critical, objective eyeballs. But that being said, we want you to be part of the conversation with us that we're having regarding this film via the magical means of social media. Dalton, talk so I can check my phone. I will do those things, Dustin, because that is what happens. This is the part of the show where Dustin and Arthur check their phones, and I try to bore them as little as possible. Hi, welcome to Social Media Corner with me, Dalton Stewart. Um, if you want to keep this conversation going outside of uh, a one-way street where you're just listening to our, our voices be beamed into your brains, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're going to start with the ones that are least toxic. 
if you want to send us an email, you can do that at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for your long-form feedback. We would love to see some of that from you. Um, everything will be read, I can assure you. Um, if it's really good, we might read it on the air here in this corner where we do social media. Um, if you want to help the show out, if you want to just be a part of, of this thing, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show however you put your podcasts in your ears, whether it's through iTunes or through Stitcher Radio. Uh, that would be a big, big help to us. It increases our visibility in a huge way. Uh, now to the more toxic forms of engagement with the show, social media. Uh, that would be Twitter and Facebook, agents of chaos and darkness in this world. Uh, it's no good. It's bad and terrible, but we have to use it uh, because that's the way the world works now, I guess. Twitter, we are at good underscore what? There we go. Good underscore trash. Yep, that's our Twitter handle. Jeez, had a brain fart there. Um, we try to keep it as light and as cheery as we possibly can over there because, well, as I have mentioned, Twitter is is full of darkness and terrors, and Jack doesn't care about having Nazis on his website because, I don't know, Silicon Valley's weird. Uh, lots of fun polls over there. We try to give you fun movie news. We try to share really great write-ups and articles from other websites uh, that focus on cinema around the web. Uh, we also post uh, the occasional written content that comes from our website, that website being goodtrashmedia.com, where you can find all of our content and our show archives for our former shows. Uh, we always also try to keep you up to date when new shows drop, whether it's this show or The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, which is having a great run right now. Uh, definitely check that out. And they are newly, finally, after uh, some growing pains, uh, have some uh, entries on the website. We're still working uh, the kinks out on that. But, uh, again, that's the Praise Down with Heath and Alex, uh, another good trash media show that we're very, very proud of uh, and have very little to do with. We just like having them under our banner because they're good boys who make good stuff. Finally, we're on Facebook. That's Facebook.com forward slash GTM. That's what I feel about that. And last but not least, if you want to contribute financially to the show, uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on, that's going to be Patreon.com forward slash GTM. Give us a couple of bucks, give us three bucks a month, and it gets you access to all of our delicious, delicious bonus content. What kind of bonus content, you ask? Uh, well, right now, we're uh, after we record this, we're going to record a little discussion of the incredible film, First Reformed, which we've all seen now, and uh, are going to talk about some of our favorite films of the year so far. So that's, that's the kind of delicious uh, bonus content that lives over there on the Patreon. And now I am done with the part of the show where you guys check your phones. All right, um, now we go. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> Art jumping in, shouting out segment names. We're using the old transition music. Everything you, is madness. It's you mass hysteria. Bounder and you <sighs> cheat. Cats and dogs living together. I can't. Can't handle it. I can't do this. Rivers and seas boiling. But nonetheless, we are going to play the game, and this week's game is our favorite cinematic dance scenes. That's right. Favorite cinematic dance scenes brought to you by Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. There's a lot of bumping and grinding going on at, at that camp. It is indeed. Uh, so I don't, I don't know about you guys. Uh, I tried to stick to dance scenes and non-dance yeah. movies for my picks. Nope. No? Okay. I was just curious uh, how everybody else uh, went into That's this. the way I went with it. Uh, yeah, I, I, tried. I don't know why. But... I, I did, too. I just thought it would be more fun. But uh, I, I like musicals. Totally fair. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, you don't have to judge me. I was just curious. Oh, I've already judged you. Why are you judging me? You've been judged and found one time. Judge, Judy, and executioner. <laughs> oh, oh, so sad. Well, I'm going to go to you first, 
Arthur, what's your number first pick for favorite cinematic dance scenes? Uh, the first one's a tie because they both kind of do something similar within the movies, and it's Shape of Water and Temple of Doom. Uh, um, I actually hadn't seen Temple of Doom in a long time, so I watched it a couple weeks ago, and I forgot it opens with a full-on dance sequence in mm-hmm. the uh, the club that they're in in Asia. Um, and it is just a bizarre way to open that movie. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And, and kind of the same thing with you know Shape of Water. Shape of Water kind of has that... Uh, dream sequence dance uh, sequence that I think is just gorgeous. Uh, the way it's shot it. and the, the way it comes together. And it's kind of beautiful. Uh, but they both kind of interrupt this film that you're not expecting to see something like that. And I think it was just, you know, depending on who you are, your expectations, it'll either rub you the wrong way or you're just really into it, especially with Shape of Water. Um, but they both come off well. And, you know, uh, Shape of Water, I think it's a little more integral to the plot and, and some of that kind of meta stuff that, uh, Del Toro's doing and his appreciation of the classics and things like that. Uh, but for Temple of Doom, it just, I don't know why it exists, um, but it's fascinating. And it is a grand dance sequence. I mean, it is a huge production. Um, and it, it doesn't feel real because there's no way this club can be that big. The club Obi-Wan. Um, it, it's it's wild. hilarious. I about that touch. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, club Obi-Wan. Um, but yeah, it, it's so weird the way that opens and, and it feels so, and it may kind of just set the tone and just the, the fantastical element of that dance number, uh, it, it was kind of jarring. And I think that jarring element is also what's kind of interesting about Shape of Water as well is just the way it interrupts what your expectations are for those movies. And so I kind of put those together for those reasons. Nice pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number first pick for favorite cinematic dance sequence? Uh, My first pick is another one that comes in a place in a film that just really shakes things up and keeps you on your toes. It is Ex Machina. Uh, we've got Oscar Isaacs tearing up the fucking dance floor. Um, it's a short scene, as as he so eloquently puts it, uh, or ripping it up. Uh, it's just such a weird moment that really tells you a lot about what is going on in that film. And I, I think it's a, it's just such a bizarre and silly moment that really, really works very well for me. Um, Oscar Isaacs' character, Nathan, dancing with uh, Kyoko, uh, the uh, character that well, spoiler alert, it is also an android. Uh, I don't think we know that at that point in the film, uh, but Oscar Isaacs and uh, Sonia Mizuno, uh, just, their choreography is really great. They have the, Their moves are really synced up in a fun way, and it just puts you in the headspace of Donald Gleason's character and this kind of descent into chaos. And Wow, that's a word that keeps coming up a lot on this uh, week's episode, huh? But just this descent into weirdness and unreality and the unreal and the real getting harder and harder to distinguish as happens throughout that film. I just, I think it's a great moment in the movie uh, and really kind of serves as a wonderful break point in the film that kind of advances the second half of that narrative in really, really interesting ways. So that is my first pick. Ex Machina. Very, very good. Um, my first pick is a moment in which the team has been assembled and the task is now at hand. And so you've got all four of your major leads together dancing on a yellow brick road and they are off to see a wizard. Um, I love that particular... I mean, there, there's a lot of great dance sequences as uh, Dorothy meets each of the individual characters. But when they all four are together, they do their own little bits and pieces there and they also dance in time and sequence. And it is fabulous and uh, the Wizard of Oz is just one of those great all-time movies, and they are now off to see The Wizard. Spoiler alert, it is James Franco. Moving. No. 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 Well, I'm Go gonna... back. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Go back to the castle. <laughs> Judy, don't. Just don't, Judy. Um, but anyway, Arthur Gordon, what is your number next pick for favorite cinematic dance sequence? Uh, my second pick is going to be from Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Yeah. And it is the Bright Side of Life yes. finale. It's a good one. Uh, it's the perfect cap for the absurdity of that movie. Every sperm is sacred. <laughs> but, no. it's, a, it's a good one. Is that meaning of life? Yeah. yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen that one. Um, but uh, Life of Brian, I only saw once when I was really young, and, and it's just stuck with me, that song and that sequence, and they're all just bobbing on the crosses. And I think it's just, it's the perfect finale for that movie. It's an amazing it, closer. It works great. The you know the song itself is well written, but uh, it's the tone, the the way it comes off. I, 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 I think it's great, and I love it. So I'm going to go with Life of Brian. Excellent, excellent. I appreciate that very much. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number next pick for favorite cinematic dance sequence? My next pick comes from one of the cult hits of the mid-aughts, a film that was, uh, much like Dirty Dancing, a cultural touchstone and revolution among my age group. Nope, it's going to be Napoleon Dynamite, uh, a film that I have not <laughs> good, seen in... Good oh, cut. Good, I have good not, cut. Thank you. Yep. I haven't seen it in years, but that... The climactic yep. talent show dance sequence uh, that uh, John Hader puts on as Napoleon is that apocalyptic dance sequence. It's so it is amazing, so great, and weird, and wild, and just a culmination of that film in really magnificent ways. And I think if you're looking at dance scenes in non musicals or non dance movies, you need there needs to be a point there, right? And with Ex Machina, we were looking at a, a break point in the film for Napoleon Dynamite. It really is the climax of the film. Mm -hmm. It is. This character stepping into his weirdness uh, on his own terms and uh, being uh, not only unashamed but also proud of his weird, bizarre dance that he's going to do for the talent show. And it's, man, it's something else. And I really like it. And, it, again, much like Arthur with Life of Brian, I haven't seen Napoleon Dynamite since I saw it two or three times when it first yep. came out. And I haven't seen it since. But that is forever cemented into my brain, as it likely is for most people around yep. my age. Excellent, excellent. I like that pick very much. I'm also going into religious territory, Mr. Arthur Gordon, because I'm picking the Simon the Zealot dance from Jesus Christ Ooh, Superstar. Oh, a good one. It, I mean, it is the the biggest set piece as far as dance choreography in the entire film. And uh, Simon the Zealot's uh, vocal performance is amazing. And that last bit, you know, you you got the power, you got the glory uh, bit is just really, really powerful and moving. And he suffered from heat stroke um, whilst doing doing oh, this goodness. particular performance and had to come back and finish it the next uh, two days, three days. I don't know wow. however long it takes you to get better from heat stroke. I've yeah. never had that before. But I uh, love the Simon the Zealot dance in Jesus Christ Superstar, and I like musicals, and I'm still picking them. So there you go. There, stick it. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last pick for favorite cinematic dance scene? I mean, the musical picks make sense. I mean, this is pretty much a dance musical movie, so, I mean, that would have been the more logical way to go. But for some reason, I was just more interested in you know, non-musical. Same here, buddy. Yeah, I don't know why. It's just more appealing to me. Because I think it's more interesting when you play with that trope in a non-dance film. Uh, and, and like that, I think playing with that trope in an action film where you're not expecting it and using it as a climax to the narrative uh, to really set up the final moment. And that's uh, Star-Lord's dance-off in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a fun moment, man. It is a fun moment. And in any other movie, it would not work. But it's the perfect moment for uh, uh, Peter Quill. It's the perfect moment for what that movie has set up. And, and it it plays exactly into what that film's rules are. It's one of the only moments where uh, Lee Pace's performance actually feels like a Lee Pace performance. Yeah. Because he stops having to be a scenery-chewing villain and gets to have, like, a really fun reaction yeah. shot. Yeah. So I, I think just 
And that's what it is. When those moments pop up in unexpected places. I think it just makes them more memorable, especially if they're executed well. I think it is in Guardians. So I'm going to go with that as my number one pick. I was certain that would come up, and I totally support it. Moving on, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number last pick for favorite cinematic dance sequence? My number last pick is a, a film that I think is responsible for a lot of furthering of the weird surreal dance sequence in a non-dance movie it is the coen brothers big lebowski no it is not transformers it is the uh, just dropped in uh the busby berkeley uh, moment so, there yeah the, so the bowling alley is that, yeah, yeah. yeah the bowling alley, bowling alley and you've got uh valkyries and uh, it just <laughs> it's absolutely perfect buck wild yeah. and is really I mean, it is the moment that people remember from that film, obviously. There's, yeah. there's, I mean, it's a film that's extremely quotable and has a lot of really great scenes, but it is the scene of the movie in a lot of ways, and yeah. it's just so fabulous. And again, kind of harkens back to what Arthur was talking about with his first two picks in terms of you know, making a real production number. Not not just a little small dance like an Ex Machina, yeah. but a full production a big, number yeah. with crazy sets. I mean, yeah, it's a Bugsy, Bugsby Berkeley number, as, mm-hmm. as Dustin so eloquently put it. Yeah, I mean, it just... And again, it helps that it's a dream sequence because it allows them to really embrace that that gigantic production, uh, that elaborate costuming and sets that also feel like a little bit cheap in just like the right way. And it's great. I, I could watch that scene right now and be uh, perfectly content. Uh, wouldn't even need to watch the whole movie. I just that's, That moment is so good. Uh, what a joy. Excellent, excellent. I like that pick very much. Um, before I give my number last pick, I will give one honorable mention to a non-musical dance movie uh, dance scene, and that is the Jitterbug opening sequence of Mulholland Drive. It is both fun and interesting and exciting and also darkly sad. It is. You had a non-musical pick in there. Which was uh, this one. This one. Well, that was my honorable mention. I'm actually going to give oh, my... Oh, sorry. Sit. You completely tuned out on that, didn't you? I did. I hey, just guess what Dalton just did when I talked? He's looking at his phone. Yeah, He's looking a little at his bit. Phone. Look, these things happen Hypocrite. from time to time. Yeah, that's... that's um, I believe there's a moat in your eye um, or a beam that you need to remove first. But moving right... You should plug that eye out. I think High so. horse riding motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, my number uh, last pick is um, Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. I love, I mean, and there's some great stuff throughout the film. And, uh, you know, Maureen O'Hara has got some great um, performances as well. But that Sid Charisse uh, sort of dream sequence with that Salvador Dali landscape, those long billowing um, t- uh, rolls of fabric. All of that is just is really, really incredible, and it does sort of tie into some of the surreality that we see in the dance number that we uh, – it, it's sort of an apotheosis of the Bugs, Bu, Busby Berkeley. That's a hard word to say fast. Um, Busby Berkeley musical, but it also sort of points us forward to what we might see later in A Big Lebowski and uh, in other sort of incorporations of the dance sequence in sort of more uh, standard dramatic or comedic Hollywood fare. And so uh, Sid Charisse is great, doesn't get nearly enough love. Gene Kelly gets plenty of love, but um, that sequence is phenomenal, and I recommend Singing in the Rain in its entirety uh, to you whole heartily so that being said that is the end of our gameplay dear listener if you have any suggestions that you would like to make to us via those magical means of social media already mentioned you may do so and we'd love to hear your favorite cinematic dance sequences send it with a gif because the gif is the gift that keeps on gifing um (laughs) oh man so thanks dad enough of this foolishness i think it's time to get down to business
And we are back to bring some spicy analysis to Dirty Dancing. Muy caliente. It's going to be very, very fun. No, we're not Sorry. talking Havana Nights. No, we're not. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, we're going to do that. Um, I am going to suggest that we do the heavy-duty, ugly bit last um, to save that for the end um, so we can do the fun stuff first. I'm not sure that's a wise decision, but it feels like the natural one. At- we tend to end on the heavy notes. So. Yeah. It's kind of how we, yeah, it's for how we reason. do things. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna set aside um, the penny narrative for the time being and move directly into some of the other interesting bits of analysis. Um, let's talk about this first and foremost. Baby feminist icon or not? Pro or con? Go. Oh God! Jeez! Yes. Just throwing that I out thought there, you said we you? were going to wait for a second to really. Jesus! Oh. Well, yeah, I think she, I think she's awesome. I, she's great. I, yeah. yeah, as a character, I think she's set up. Has that right? I mean, she's very intellectual and she's very you know passionate about things. She's kind of seems to try to play within the patriarchy, but she also knows to push back and when to push. And she has to push back eventually. You know, she mm-hmm. she stumbles because the patriarchy is very obviously literally uh, kind of uh, I can't think of words, but hovering over her, um, you know, with her dad, and and that's kind of the climactic battle and hill that she has to fight when she tells. Uh, you know, she keeps preaching or, you know, telling uh, Johnny that he has to stand up for what he believes and stand up to the man, the man, essentially. Uh, but it's something she's not willing to do. But it, it, it is an arc that she she finalizes by the end of the movie to be true to herself and to stand up for the people that are, you know, kind of less fortunate or, you know, that aren't rich and white or whatever. And uh, I, I think it's an interesting character point, especially uh, I think setting it in the 60s is you know key to that as well. Um, so. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think she's kind of comfortable with her infantilization with the name of Baby. Yeah. But that being said, she um, is also understanding that to be sort of a liminal, temporary label that she's wearing. She's going to be Francis. You know, she is going to join the cabinet at some point, right? Like she, that, that, and that, and so there's, there's a way in which she is sort of playing the game, but playing the game wisely. I love how she is, I, I can't really think of any 80s or early 90s sort of romantic comedy, teenage comedy uh, sort of film in which the female character is fully sexually self-determining. I, I cannot I cannot think of an example of that. And and I think it's part of why this film has had the staying power it's had. Yeah. yeah I, I also can't think of one. And again, it, it might help that this is a drama, not a comedy, and allows that seriousness a little bit. Um, but yeah, I am I, inclined to agree with you, and I wish I could think of some, but none come to mind immediately for me, not within that 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 time span that you've dictated. Yeah, yeah. She's I mean, she's fully self-determining, and she does sort of take her own power in her own hands and does what she needs to do. And, and again, she works within systems, and she bucks against them and all that, and uh, her no. name itself is really the biggest problem I've got with her. Yeah. But aside from that, she um, – she liber- this is was crazy. Most of these movies, and especially in the dramatic sense, as you mentioned, uh, this movie being a drama rather than a comedy, usually there is some form of rescue that has to happen by the end of the film in which the damsel in distress is rescued by the young, handsome hero. But what Patrick Swayze confesses at the end of the film is how Baby rescued him. And that is pretty awesome. It's pretty badass. And again, even the uh, nobody puts baby in a corner moment really isn't what you think it is. No. Uh, I mean, it's I, very literal. She's sitting in the corner. Yeah, and it's it's not a it's not a moment of rescue. It's a moment of you have rescued me, and I I feel compelled to make sure that you realize how important you are. It's it's not a moment of rescue. It's a moment of. Uh, 
I don't even know how to put it. It's almost a, a moment of affirmation of of her rescue of the rescue yeah. that she has already you know committed to him. Yeah. Right. And uh, so it's it's really really powerful. I mean, and again, you know, you think about the sort of feminine female feminine feminine heroes uh, in films of of this like, and they all are all just you know they're either just surrogates for the drama, they're yeah. emotional anchors, they are people who move along the plot, yeah. and those kind of things. And this is baby's movie from start to finish, and uh, Swayze's along for the ride. Yeah, and it's not what you normally see, and I. Man, I dig me some baby. I mean, I, I think, yeah. She's great. And, I mean, this this kind of plays into the pinning narrative, which we'll get to. But, uh, I mean, she uses her privilege and her power in ways that uphold people around her. She uses her, her position and her uh, the, the naive optimism that her position has granted her in life uh, uses it to help other people. And when that naivety uh, really kind of gets turned around on her has that moment of really powerful growth that I, I, I think, as, as we've said, establishes that that third act uh, character change that she has in a really, really cool way. Yeah, and she's not, like, perfect, you know, in the sort of sense of, like, uh, utterly babe-in-the-woods kind of innocence, nor is she, you know, fully, you know, world-weary and aware. She's somewhere in the middle. She's got that nuance that I think oftentimes teenage characters lack. And again, I, I think as all teenagers have to some extent, yeah. and I, I think that's part of... The strength of the film is the accuracy with, you know, the film, the filmic accuracy, I, I guess we should clarify, that that it establishes for, for the 17-year-old character that, that I think is really great. Absolutely. All right, now I want to ask my next question, which is, uh, which is more about class, Dirty Dancing or Downton Abbey? Go. Ooh. I think Dirty Dancing puts a fresh coat of paint on it, or Americanizes at least, this kind of upstairs, downstairs genre of uh, the rich and the uh, subservient. Uh, the, uh, you familiar with something like a Gosford Park or even Rules of the Game, Jean Renoir, mm -hmm. uh, where we kind of see the, uh, the elite, the bourgeoisie of society, as well as the, uh, the, the maids and the butlers and their interactions in the downstairs area. And in this case, we've got the... Uh, We've got the nice resort. It's it's uh, it's a resort, most more more than, more than less, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, uh, and then we've got the uh, the staff housing, which is kind of a rundown Friday the Thirteenth looking campground. Uh, it is. It very much mm -hmm. is. I was really worried because when she first walks up to it, we see this thing. It looks like a shipping container where it just says like uh, ser uh, servants or whatever, the helpers uh, quarters or whatever. And I'm like, are they all living in like? Like shipping containers? I don't remember this at oh, all. Oh no! But it's like this very elaborate, like uphill, like campground thing uh, that feels very, very, very rustic compared to the uh, the nicer, uh, bougie uh, country club of a, a resort that everybody else is living in, playing croquet and taking dancing lessons. And even within the help, though, there's a class distinction also, yeah. right? There's, like, help who are there for their talent purposes. Yeah. And then there's help that are there because they are owed favors to their families or to their fathers. Yeah. Guys like Robbie, who's who sucks. Who's about to go be a doctor, I think, is yeah, what he's about he's to go going to med, med school. school. But he's doing – it's a summer job, a summer yeah. internship. He's making some money and doing that sort of thing. But he's not in the same situation where this is the living that uh, certain other members of the uh, staff are are yeah. doing right. Well, I haven't seen Downton Abbey, uh, but I, I haven't either. Yeah, Me but I, your point is well taken because I think what Dirty Dancing does is it highlights the 
the ways in which class in America are very different. Uh, you know, the, the narrative in America is that you, anybody can bootstrap themselves up into the, the next class. And I think that makes the ways in which our stories and our narratives interrogate class much, much different because there's less institutionalization there, right? Um, there, there is a narrative presented that there is no classism system in America, which is obviously a crock and completely absurd. Um, but the the ways in which we have tried to hide the class system in America through a narrative of self-starterism, um, I, I think is very interesting uh, and probably more interesting in some respects than it is when, you know, you're interrogating the very institutionalized class system of the United Kingdom uh, throughout its history. So, I, 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 yeah, I think this film is about class in ways that are really powerful and really interesting. And you're right, there, there are these... Uh, these rich kids who are slumming it for lack of a better word to, you know, have, make some extra money, uh, you know, outside the allowance that they already get from daddy. Um, and I, I think it's really cool seeing the interactions and the, the ways in which the people in these service jobs who are just here for a moment get treated differently than people who are in these service jobs because that's the opportunity that's open to them. Yeah. Did you guys notice the book Robbie Hands uh, Baby the when the Fountainhead Head by Ayn Rand? Yeah. 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 It's got notes in the margins. Uh, Bring it back. Well, some people matter, some don't. Read this book. I want to fart on every meal that guy has for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Robbie is the worst. He's trash. But the, I mean, that's the thing is that some people matter and some people don't. You know, it, it, it's sort of a recapitulation of the the line from Orwell's Animal Farm, right? Some people are just more equal than others. Yeah. Um, and and it's a it's a much more scandalous sort of version of that statement. Is that yeah? You, he's in the same sort of you know subservient position as staff, but he has all of those resources of capital, all those resources of class. All those resources of cultural capital, like Pierre Bourdieu would say, uh, and connectivity to you know other people with uh, power and with wealth, that he's just not in the same place, and he matters in ways that you know guys like Johnny Castle and Penny don't, and uh, that's why he can just do whatever he wants. I mean, it's the same talking point that allows people to say dumb crap like, um, well, we you know minimum wage shouldn't need to be raised you know we don't need unionized service workers because those jobs are just for people who are you know on their first or second job in high school no they're not there are people who will be working those jobs their entire lives absolutely um, and then you know unless we're going to fix our system where that's not the case those people deserve to be paid a actual real living wage just like everybody else well and there's a certain way in which we would deny the dignity of someone who Bingo. can only get that kind of gig for now right it allows you to say they're not the kind of people that matter yeah they yeah they that you don't count because you have have no more education, you have no more language skills, you have no more uh, of a better criminal record in many cases, which is prohibitive from hiring, that you, you're you stuck here. And so you're just like a college – not a college, but a high school kid, right? And so you go in the same category as some 15-year-old working their first job. It infantilizes class yeah. and, and denies the wisdom that people who have uh, you know been working in the service industry for years uh, – Definitely have, uh, because I'll tell you what, there is no finer uh, example of people watching than working in the service industry and watching how people treat, regard, and act around yep. people who are working service jobs. Yeah, uh, three people who've worked a lot of service jobs in their lives can attest to, I'm sure. And I do find that the film then is quite subversive. I mean, this is 1987. 
right? Yeah. This is a year before George Bush the first was re- elected the first time for president. So this is this is in the last term, uh, last year of Ronald Reagan's second term, and so we're living in an era of trickle down economics. That is a that is a buzzword. We're living in a world of Milton Friedman and his shock doctrine, economic policies, and so this is this sort of economic conversation is very much part of what's going on in Thatcher's Britain and also in Reagan's United States. And so for this film to cast a character like Robbie, who is, you know, clearly a heel and clearly, you know, taking advantage of, you know, the, the, the sexual willingness of a penny and, you know, doing those kinds of things and then bugging out when there is something that needs to be handled. There, there's got definite responsibility and we're going to get to that last. Um, but he's able to do that because, you know, he's, he's, he's up on the food chain, so to speak. It is, it is very much an economic Darwinism. And for the film to cast him as such, to frame it in that way, even though it's set in the 1960s, is an indictment of Reagan-era economic policies and, uh, you know, uh, pointing towards some of the causes of the recession that this, the country was coming out of just at that point. And, you know, in a film that allows its male protagonist to avoid the uh, the pitfalls of toxic masculinity that we talked about last week and probably, as Arthur uh, was talking uh, to us about off off air, it's probably going to come up quite a few times throughout this marathon. Sure. Um, but uh, Johnny Castle's character, uh, the character of Johnny Castle, is, is allowed to avoid a lot of those pitfalls by being a, just a pretty great dude. Um, the one moment that it happens is, uh, you know, that there is something that you could even call toxic masculinity coming from that character is him rearranging Robbie's face, which is really satisfying. I'm uh, sorry. I, yeah, well, I wanted more. Yeah, look, and that's the thing. Sometimes, wanted, no, no, he is worth it. He is worth he it. He is worth it. He Pick is up, the exact person who is worth it. Pick up that rock. <laughs> <laughs> but, sorry. But I, I think it's an interesting moment. It, I honestly am surprised at how little reaction there is to that, to that moment. Because uh, that's not what gets Johnny in trouble. It's his relationship with Baby. And Baby doesn't really have much of a reaction to Robbie getting his face rearranged, which I think is interesting. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm curious about that moment in the film. Uh, I feel like you have thoughts on it, Dustin, because you're making a face. Well, I mean, he says something to the extent of, you know, I, I was slumming it too. I mean, yeah. that, that's, what, that's what brings it about yeah. is that he sees that, oh, so you are now, you know, with Johnny Castle – I, I see what you're doing there. You do the same thing that I was doing. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that was, you know, possibly interested in her and in her sister, Lisa. Well, and that's that's the line. It, 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 it's a curious moment because there's two things that get said. There's I see that I tried to hook up with the wrong sister, mm-hmm. which is he's implying yeah. that the baby is loose, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then I was slumming it, too. So he impines her dignity, but he also impines Johnny's worthiness of personhood. Right. Well, yeah. and, and, and it's a sideswipe a penny. Yeah, it, it's a sideswipe at everybody, yeah, uh, and it, it makes it an interesting moment of why does uh, Johnny Castle in that moment choose to uh, act uh, violently? Well, he's already pushed to the edge anyway, so I mean, he's already—it's just the tipping point, I think. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I would have been able to not um, lay hands on certain yeah. brothers at that point. So yeah, it, it's a tough moment, and uh, but it is—it is close to the edge of that sort of toxic masculinity. There, I think it avoids it fairly well, though, because it mm-hmm. doesn't come across as 
you know, overly white nighty in ways that are, you know, kind of gross. Yeah, he says, no, I'm very, very angry with you, and I want to hurt you, yeah. Yeah. And which, you know, happens. Yeah, sometimes. There's, there's some truth Well, that. that's what happens when you go around saying some people matter and some people don't. The people who you don't think matter might decide to remind you that they do matter. And they yeah. punch a Nazi in the face. And, and then, Mr. Spencer, you get what you deserve. Mm-hmm. I mean, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there's that. Okay, the big ugly. Um, let's talk about Penny. Um, I, 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 I don't have a cutesy question for this particular one, but this film is, uh, set in a moment before Roe v. Wade. Uh, Penny ends up having a, uh, sort of a botched back room kind of abortion because she got knocked up by the rich kid, Robbie, who will not do anything to help her because he can just, you know, she doesn't matter. Run and gun. This is a time before paternity tests and he can say, it's not mine. Yep. Yeah. You are a slut. And you sleep with everybody. And He's already got his alibi. Because yeah. yeah. you slept with me, therefore you sleep with everybody. Trash. I mean, it's but I mean that's how it works in the '60s, right? In those yeah. sort of sexual politics, anyway. Yeah. And, and they're more apt to believe him because he's got the money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so you know, I I think it's amazing. Again, 1987, that the central plot movement of the film centers around an illegal abortion. Yeah. And they never say the word abortion, which uh, I feel like is clearly coming from the studio. But I think they navigate it in ways that are very effective. Yeah. Uh, n- navigate their inability to talk about it um, using those actual words. Um, I-, I-, I can only assume it's got to be a studio thing. I mean, th- I can't think of any other reason for them to actively avoid the word that much. Yeah, that, I mean, that only makes sense to me as well. I mean, and I can definitely recall as a child watching this movie and not knowing what was going on, what Penny's trouble was. Yeah. yeah. You know, she she was in trouble somehow and she had to go to a doctor and because uh, she couldn't afford a doctor. I mean, I knew she was pregnant and then I knew that she wasn't. But I didn't know the dots were not connected. No, I just, yeah. had no idea. I, I think the way the ha- the film handles it uh, is really kind of lovely. Uh, I mean, I'm wrong. It, what Penny has to go through, like the acting that takes place uh, for her to d- demonstrate the pain that she's in, is really upsetting. Yeah. But I, I think the film handles with a lot of empathy. Uh, you know, Mister Baby's Dad. Uh, is not mad about the abortion. He's mad about the lying, and yeah. he's mad that he doesn't feel like he can trust these kids that his daughter's hanging out with because yeah. they're also lying to him. But it doesn't come from a place of shaming Penny. Like, he's only gentle and caring. He's a good doctor, yeah. is what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his rage comes at thinking that his daughter is dating some guy who won't take responsibility for his actions. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, the morality uh, of abortion. And I, th- I think it's a really... A really effective way to handle it again yeah. in 1987, which is pretty pretty wild. Yeah, I, I agree with all Dalton's thoughts. I mean, I, I think it is it's very, handled very well, and it's a very interesting to see that taboo subject, uh, you know, here. And, and I think it's handled with a lot of grace and care that you wouldn't see in maybe another film where it would where it would be a plot point. And I don't feel you know like you know it, it openly makes Robbie Dow to be the bad guy, and we never you know it's never judgmental towards Penny or anything like that, which I think is very appreciative. And I, th- I think it just goes back to some of that writing of, of our characters here, you know, of, of all the characters. And I think that's just a lot of care go- went into that. And I, I, I appreciate that plot line and the way it kind of pans out for the, for the film. Absolutely. And I think it does help remind uh, a 1987 audience, this is what it was like before Roe v. Wade. That was, the, it's funny you say it because I said the exact same thing as I was watching it. I said, and people want to make it illegal again. And, and, and yeah, and, and put people in that position. Exactly. Again. 
and uh, and it's, it's just like wow, I, it, it, it is something else. Uh, and so it's it's important to think about okay, this is what you know abolition, you know, so to speak, uh, looks like regarding that particular yeah. law. I mean, it just speaks to the strength of Eleanor Bergstein's screenplay. Yeah. And I don't think you know, and apparently this is a somewhat loosely autobiographical screenplay. I mean, this is. Uh, I, I don't know if there was ever a romance with a dance instructor or anything, but this is uh, apparently you know she came from a a pretty well to do liberal Jewish family. They went to a cabin like this to, or the resort like this to summer. Um, and, and again, I, I think a screenplay from a dude, um, you know, not saying that men can't write you know sympathetic and empathetic stories that feature abortion, but in 1987, I think the the conversation around it had not evolved to the point where it would have been uh, quite so delicately and uh, empathetically handled uh, her screenplay's great mm-hmm. and I, I think it, it really weaves uh, you, powerful stuff like class like abortion uh, like sexual awakening it weaves it throughout the film really effectively so yeah I, I, I it's a great screenplay honestly yeah. and I, and I love how it doesn't really even wrestle with the questions of the morality it just simply says this is the challenge of the material circumstances yeah and wherever you know a person may fall in that particular conversation they have to reckon with this is what the situation is now how can we most humanize that that is a much more healthy way to begin any conversation mm-hmm. about that which usually ends up with people talking past one another because they only begin with positions of moral absolutes rather than saying this is the circumstance now what looks better than this and then we move on you know i think that's powerful and useful and uh as as useful today as it was in 87 well and again to to close us out on a happier note i think we can uh, talk about the you know this is only one of the myriad ways that this film portrays female sexuality in ways that are super healthy uh, and, and don't feel uh exploitative or judgy i mean it is all handled super well and again i i think the relationship between baby and johnny is uh, again we talked about this off air the 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 lover boy moment yeah is such a great moment in this film and again it came from you know improv between scenes but it's such a great moment because it captures uh, a, a moment in a between a couple that's both sexy and playful and silly um, and that's great. That's just fun. And you don't get that in a lot of films. Uh, and it just, I think, is a big part of why this film has had staying power because of the ways in which it really accurately and realistically portrays uh, sexual romantic love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what I got to say about that. Excellent, excellent. Well, I've had the time of my life, guys, but I think it's time to render a verdict. Can I ask one more question? Oh, oh absolutely. Last week when we talked Stand By Me, we set up some precedents about what makes a good coming-of-age film. Ah, yes. Does Dirty Dancing check those boxes for you? Oh, yeah. If the witch is the patriarchy inside of her dad, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, as I recall, last week I talked about uh, that aesthetic truth that we talked about from Werner Herzog, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, not everybody has to convince their dad to give them $250 so they can help a new friend pay for an abortion, but I think everybody has a moment where they want to do the right thing and know doing the right thing means having to be dishonest sometimes, and um, there's, there comes times when you have to have a break from your family Um in terms of seeing eye to eye on things and uh, it doesn't always go smoothly. And I think this film does a really, really good job of communicating. Look, everybody's had, uh, 
I'm, I'm sure all of our listeners can relate to the idea of a relationship when you're young that your parents don't approve of, sometimes for reasons that make a lot of sense, um, and sometimes reasons that make a lot of sense because they don't know the full story and you don't know how to tell them the full story. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Dirty Dancing does a really good job of, of not making uh, Mr. Baby uh, out to be a bad guy, but also showing you that he is in the wrong, but he has come to the wrong conclusion for reasons that come from a, a healthy and caring place that don't come from an overly domineering and authoritative place. I totally agree. So yeah, I, I think it does hold up that standard that we set out. Arthur, what, what about for you? No, I, I agree. I think, you know, we've got this kind of her ideology is challenged and that kind of arc there that plays out. Uh, and also, you know, she doesn't make, you know, quite the same journey as something in Stand By Me, but she does make this journey and, and uh, in the course of, uh, befriending uh, the the staff, I think uh, it opens her eyes to a new world, and she sees things that, uh, in uh, probably a more mundane situation, she probably wouldn't have experienced until much later in life. And so, I think she is awakened in those ways, and just a lot of you know the sexual awakening aspect of it. And I think, yeah, I think it, it checks those boxes for me too. Yeah, I mean, she definitely learns that th- this character who wants to make the world a better place learns that that's not always as easy as you want it to be. No. And that's an important lesson to learn. Yeah, I think you're right. She's got a great character arc. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get to that verdict now. What do we say? Show for trash, else or instead to Dirty Dancing. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Show for trash? And then what else or what instead should they watch? I am going to go ahead and say shelf. I, I think, again, we've talked, or at least I've talked a lot about uh, during this episode, the ways in which this film has managed to stay culturally relevant. And I think that is the benefit of making any coming of age story a period piece because you don't have to be of the moment. You can be of the moment of your childhood and try to use your childhood and your coming of age to speak to larger issues that come about for adolescents and teenagers. And again, we we talked about the care with which this film discusses abortion and class and female sexuality and sexual awakening and it does does so in ways that feel honest and um, sexy and powerful and um, really liberating. And, and it, again, it, it does so in ways that are kind of perfect for a film, a, you know, a big crowd-pleasing film to address these issues in ways that doesn't feel like the film is talking past half the audience. It really feels like, hey, we want you to think about this. We want you to have empathy for all of these characters and we want you to maybe grow and change and look that's what film does right it's a it's a device for making people challenge their preconceived notions about other people's lives and i i think it's a film that while you know lacking in some areas as we've talked about some of the editing choices and you know some of just the ways in which the plot feels like it should have been arranged a little bit differently all of that stuff aside there's not a lot of films like dirty dancing and i i think it is important for those reasons uh because everybody needs to see a film about being, you know, uh, a horny 17-year-old at a, at a summer resort. And I, I think that's great. So, yeah, I think it's totally shelfable. What should you pair with it? Um, I'm going to pick another dance movie that we talked about a few months back. It's going to be John Waters' Hairspray, another dance film set in the 60s uh, that does a really great job of navigating big issues uh, by uh, using a lot of heart. And obviously, it's a film that's much campier than this one. Uh, but I think it's doing a lot of the same things in really interesting ways. Uh, I'm also going to recommend uh, the other great 80s dance movie, uh, Footloose. I mean, Footloose pairs with this movie so well. Uh, I, I honestly think they are a perfect double feature uh, for reasons that don't really need to be gone into, just in terms of 
what they're about and who they're about. Uh, really great stuff. Uh, and finally, a, a film that uh, makes the film Dirty Dancing a huge plot point, and that's Crazy Stupid Love, uh, a film I haven't seen in a couple of years. But I, I, I think a film that speaks to the cultural staying power of uh, the the finale of this film. And uh, look, sometimes it's annoying when films are self-referential, but uh, when it's something as uh, big a cultural touchstone as Dirty Dancing, I think you can get away with it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dollinster. What do you say, Arthur Gordon? Gordon? <laughs> Words are hard. Shelf or trash, else or instead. I, too, will put it on the shelf. I, I, I like it quite a bit on, on the rewatch, and I, I think there's a lot to take away from it. I think there's a lot of value in it. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll throw it on the shelf. I think just like Dalton, I, I mentioned uh, Footloose, and I also think Pretty in Pink uh, would pair well with it here. I, I say uh, I think you've got to check out, uh, as far as class goes, I think you've got to watch some of those upstairs-downstairs stories. If that's Gossard Park, if it's Rules of the Game, if it's Downton Abbey, just kind of any of those uh, would pair well uh, with what's going on here from that standpoint. And then if you're, you're, you're talking about a story about discovery and, and name changes, I, I think just like Francis... Uh, uh, baby becomes Francis. Uh, you got to watch Lady Bird become Christine, mm. and so I think you watch Lady Bird with this as well. Those would be my else's with very dirty dancing. Very nice pick. It was given to me by me. It was. It, it was. Yes. We're not going to argue. It, good. Good pick, it's, Arthur. It's your given name, Dustin. Where where are you, where are you coming down at? Um, I'm going to say uh, let's see more of our cinematic. Pa- I'm going to say I'm going to say shelf. Now, that's good, and you should watch it. I want to see our cinematic pair work a little bit together in um, slightly more hostile conditions. Check out Red Dawn. Uh, then I'm also going to recommend you check out Ghost. Uh, Hell yeah. And I think that triple Patrick Swayze feature is a good time for all. Stick on Roadhouse for good measure, and you'll never want to talk to anybody but Patrick Swayze ever again. And just close it out with Point Break. Oh, what a day. <sighs> what a beautiful, beautiful day. <laughs> That's a good day. I'd recommend The Outsiders, too, but I haven't seen it. So uh, It's good. Everything with Patrick Swayze is good, obviously. Black Dog? Black Dog is good. I don't even know tru- about It's film. a trucker movie. He's a truck driver, and it's got Randy Travis and Meatloaf in it. Oh. It's so good. Ha- what, what, next of kin. <laughs> Every Patrick Swayze movie is good. I... I- <laughs> I th- I remember I can't remember if this argument was made on a TV show or in a, uh, a pop culture essay I read one time, but the argument was that Patrick Swayze is in the second best version of every movie. He's in the second best dance movie, Dirty Dancing. He's in the second best heist movie, uh, Point Break, and it was just like going down his filmography and Ghost, the second best spectral love story. Yeah, it was just it was a really great. Just what like, was yeah. the first? I can't remember. That's the problem. I wish I could remember what the number ones were. Yeah, Yeah, that's 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 the real shame. I'm going to have to find that someday. Yeah, it's good stuff. So check out some Swayze. Check out all the things we recommend. Your syllabus just got longer, dear listener. So um, I guess this is a marathon. If we do one more, it's a marathon. Yes, summer's not over. Neither are we. That's uh, next week. uh, We're loading up the bus. Uh, We're hitting the road. We got a call from Rolling Stone. They want 3000 words on Stillwater. Uh, so we're joining the band. We're going to see the world, or at least the country, and we're going to be find out what it takes to be almost famous. There you go. I've never seen this movie. I so. hadn't either till last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So are you excited? I am. I oh. actually it, it, it checks my boxes. I'll say that. Uh, I have not seen it in a very long time, and I watched it on TV, so that which ruins you with commercials. Yeah, so I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go ahead and fair disclosure. Uh, I, I own it on Blu-ray. And I own the director's cut of this film, uh, which is apparently 40 minutes longer Whoa. than the actual Holy film. <laughs> so, well, Whoa. does it come with a theatrical cut? Nope. 
Well, you're guess all I'm in. watching the director's cut. Thanks, Cameron Crowe, for your, your childhood monologue. So I'm actually quite curious about how much different it is. Because uh, 40 minutes is a lot of That's movie. That's a lot of movie. Dustin, uh, you will be the only... I'm going to be borrowing Arthur's director's cut, so Dustin, you'll have to uh, be the voice of reason. It's up to you. You can watch either one. Okay. I, I don't know what I'll watch. I'll just watch something. By yeah. the way, I did find it. Uh, it's why... It's a cracked article by Sean Baby from September 2009, why Patrick Swayze was the second best movie star ever. There you uh, go. Nice. A, a memorial uh, literally written three days after we lost Swayze, talking about how in his 30-year career... He was the second best movie star of all time. There so, you go. Great article. Highly recommended. Nice. So uh, take a look at that article. Take a look at Dirty Dancing. Take a look at Almost Famous. Take a look at any film and have a conversation because that's why we do what we do because it's what makes the cinema so worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all no. next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast. The Good Trash Genrecast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original piece by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers. And our outro music this week is I've Had the Time of My Life by... Totally lost it. <laughs> Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. See